Well, some of you might be wondering how uh, how do I get up and preach uh, just in a, in a season of life uh, like this? All right, when I, I still have a, a heavy heart, uh, full of grief and and loss, uh, but uh, also believe that uh, I'm I'm called to preach, uh, and as as uh, Paul writes to the, the young pastor, uh, Timothy, in Paul's final letter, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And I think this is, a, this is one of those times. Uh, and uh, even though my, my heart is heavy, I have, have no difficulty preaching this morning because it is a great joy to speak about my Savior. It's a great honor and privilege to get to to hold him up before us all this morning. Uh, for us to look at, to gaze upon, to see who he is and all that he has done for us. And as I said earlier, it is, it is that Savior that I will speak of this morning. It is Jesus who uh, already knows and loves and cares for that little one that we have lost. So I will gladly speak of Jesus at a time like this. And it's good for my own soul and for yours uh, to see the love and compassion that Jesus shows to us. Indeed, there is nothing better for a wounded heart, for a wounded soul, than to curl up at the feet of Jesus. To come to Him in His Word and prayer to gaze upon His glory, His majesty, and His grace. And the Lord, again, in His sovereignty, I think has, I think has brought a, a passage right in the Gospel of John that will be encouraging to our hearts this morning in the same way that the Lord in His providence uh, you know, led Vincent to preach on providence and pain on that same Sunday. And as we come to... To John chapter 6, like I said, I think it's going to be a, an encouraging passage. It was an encouraging study to my own heart, even in this season. As we come to, to John chapter 6, it's going to be very similar to uh, John chapter 5, in that, that what takes place at the beginning of the chapter uh, holds the whole chapter together. Uh, as we, we studied John chapter 5, we saw that uh, a miracle that Jesus performs at the very beginning of John chapter 5, healing a, a man who was lame for 38 years, uh, becomes the launching point for the discussion that follows, that fills the rest of the chapter. And here in, in, in John chapter 6, something similar is going to take place. The first part of the chapter has two miracles. And if you kind of just look in your Bibles and see the, the headings uh, there in different sections. Now you see that the beginning of John chapter 6 says that Jesus feeds the 5,000. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. Uh, and so that is a very public miracle uh, performed before uh, many thousands of people. And then it's going to be followed by a very private miracle uh, that only the disciples are going to be uh, aware of. As they, uh, in the middle of the night, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. So the chapter begins with these two miracles, and then uh, the rest of the chapter uh, is going to be what is known as the bread of life discourse. And that's from verses 22 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 71. Uh, and this is, uh, the, the discourse is going to build upon the miracles at the, the first part of the, the chapter. Uh, and this, this chapter is also going to make several connections between Jesus and Moses. And as we saw at the end of John chapter 5, Jesus says that Moses wrote about him. Uh, and what we're going to see in uh, John chapter 6, uh, or as we saw in the, our study uh, in the past, that, that Jesus is the new Moses who, who will lead a new exodus and who will save his people from slavery to sin. In the first exodus, God used Moses uh, to lead Israel through the Red Sea, and then he used Moses uh, to provide the people with manna, literally bread from heaven. And manna literally means, what is it? Right? If you found bread on the ground, that's probably exactly what you would say. Uh, and so we're going to see some of these th themes uh, picked up here in John chapter 6. As again, uh, the beginning of the chapter, Jesus 
literally brings bread from heaven to the people. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes, uh, and then he's going to be walking on the sea uh, in a similar fashion. But uh, Jesus is going to go beyond merely saying, here's the, the bread of life that you need. Jesus is going to say in the discourse, I am the bread of life, that Jesus is the one who sustains us. He's the one who gives life. He is the one that we need. And the miracle that we're going to look at uh, this morning, the feeding of the 5,000, it is the only miracle other than the resurrection that appears in all four uh, of the gospel accounts. Uh, and so as we, we prepare our hearts uh, to look at this passage, let's, let's read it together. Uh, John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, of the, fe- the, Passover the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What we see in this passage is that, that Jesus and his disciples had, had gone out into the wilderness uh, to get away from the crowds of people. Uh, but the crowds of people followed them into the wilderness. Uh, and uh, in this difficult situation of trying to get away from the crowds, and you can't do that, uh, in the middle of that, Jesus has compassion upon the people. And this is a passage of Scripture, a story about Jesus that we are probably very familiar with, right? Now, again, this is, this is one of the, the really easy Bible stories to teach to children in children's ministry. So if you've grown up uh, attending church, you have undoubtedly heard this story before. But I think we need to pay careful attention to it this morning because of all that it reveals to us about our Savior. As I mentioned, it, it demonstrates the, the Savior's compassion in a unique way. Uh, and uh, especially when we realize the circumstances behind this. So Jesus is trying to avoid the crowds. He's trying to, to get away, to, to rest and to relax and to, to catch up with his disciples. And the crowds keep pursuing him. And yet Jesus' compassion led him to respond to these circumstances in a way that, that glorified God the Father. And as we, we see in this passage, the compassion of Jesus is going to be displayed in four unique ways as he responds to the situation of the crowd following him. And as we see our Savior's compassion upon them, may we be encouraged and take heart that his compassion toward us is to the same degree and in the same manner. So let's look at these four ways that his compassion led him to respond. And the first way is in verses 1 through 4. We could say that the compassion of Jesus led him to graciously care for others. The compassion of Jesus led him to graciously care for others. 
And these first four verses uh, in this chapter are going to set the stage for what's going to take place. And uh, sometime after the events of, of chapter 5, we don't have an exact chronology. When it just says, after these things, it just says, uh, we, we know there's a, a sequence, but not an exact time uh, between the events of chapter 5 and the events of chapter 6. Uh, but sometime after the events of John chapter 5, we, we come here and Jesus and his disciples are traveling from the, the western edge uh, of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And they're going to go over to the, the eastern side of the lake. Uh, the desolate eastern shore where there's, there's less people. Uh, and Mark chapter 6 uh, provides us with some additional details leading up to the miracles. So Jesus had, had sent out the twelve to do ministry uh, in the middle of Mark chapter 6. He had sent them out to, to go and proclaim the gospel, to, to heal and to, to cast out demons. Uh, and so while they're out uh, doing ministry uh, in that period, uh, the news about John the Baptist's death comes to Jesus. Uh, and so the, the disciples return, maybe following that exact news, if, hey, if, if Herod is beheading people, let's, let's regather uh, and, and let's reconvene with, with Jesus. Uh, and so they, they come back to Jesus and Jesus meets with them and he wants to, they want to give a report and say, hey, here's everything that's taken place. Uh, but the, these crowds who have seen the disciples of Jesus now casting out demons and healing and doing some of the same things that Jesus himself was performing in their midst, uh, that these crowds are coming to the disciples and they're coming to Jesus because they want to see more miracles. Miracles. And Jesus and the disciples are just trying to get away. And so they decide uh, to cross the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is, uh, is fed into by the Jordan River. And th- the, this lake uh, is, is 650 feet below sea level. Okay, so, so we're talking underground. Uh, and uh, on the, the western shore... Uh, of this lake, uh, there are these hills that rise up 2,000 feet above sea level. So it's quite the spectacle, right? These hills, 2,000 feet. On the eastern shore, which is more desolate, the hills rise up to 4,000 feet above sea level. Uh, so this uh, lake is surrounded by mountains, and Jesus and his disciples are just trying to, to go over to the other side. But Mark also tells us that when the people found out that Jesus and the disciples were going to the other side, there were some of them who ran around the lake. And this is a a lake that's 13 miles long and 6 miles wide at at its widest. Uh, And people ran and beat them around the lake and were there when they sailed across on the boat. You're like, those are some dedicated runners, Uh, right? If they were so fast and so dedicated that I'm going to run around uh, and meet Jesus and his disciples before they land. And Mark chapter 6 verse 34 says this, that, that when they, he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So trying to avoid the crowd, there's so many people that came over to the other side that there's a crowd waiting for them. And it says this, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And so Jesus and the disciples specifically left to get away from the crowd. And then they, they arrive on the opposite shore and a crowd is there to meet them. Uh, I see some of you getting frustrated for them, right? Because you know how you respond when you are tired and somebody prevents you from resting, right? Uh, when, when you are tired and grumpy. But what's amazing here is what Mark says is that Jesus had compassion upon them. And Mark says that he began to teach them many things. And here in John, we see that he began to, to heal them. He began to, to heal those who are, were sick among them. Which is amazing. And all of this is, is tied in to the Passover feast. John adds that in. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And that's going to be the the context of all of these things that are going to take place. And as we see Jesus responding with compassion to what would otherwise be a very difficult and frustrating situation for all of us. And say, this is is vintage Jesus. This is him responding... uh, with patience and grace and uh, 
several years ago, there was a, a Snickers uh, commercial series. You may have seen it uh, appear in the Super Bowl and other things. And uh, the, the tagline of the series of commercials was, you aren't you, you're not you when you're hungry, right? And it had a, a picture uh, or a variety of uh, uh, series in the commercial. And th- that aspect of you're not you when you're hungry, the same can be said of when you're tired. Again, of y- you guys know how you respond when you're tired, right? You're, or hungry or uh, stressed, all of those things. Th- we are more prone to sin. We are more prone to be impatient with people. And that's what makes Jesus' response here so remarkable. That, what we see is his selfless love. That, that when he looked at the people, he in essence put on the attitude in his heart of they need a shepherd more than he needed rest. That's how he began to act. We see his compassion, his selfless love, and, and this is what we are called to emulate. This is what we are called to, to model, to put on, to become like. To have this type of compassion for others, where uh, we don't grow impatient, we don't grow uh, angry when they keep us from from obtaining something that we want, especially rest. But what's amazing is that Jesus exhausts himself in ministry to others. And then what's amazing, what he does to be refreshed, he doesn't say, oh, you just got to have some downtime. Got to go plop on the couch and, and watch a screen. Right? Jesus doesn't have that attitude. What does Jesus do over and over again to go and be refreshed? He says, I need to go away and be with God. I need to go away and, and, and spend time with the Father. And that is how repeatedly he goes and refreshes himself in ministry. And I would say we have much to learn from the love of Christ, from his compassion, from where he, he turns to be refreshed and how he's still willing to give, even at the point of being exhausted. And he does that not because he, he wants something back from the people, but because of he has a love and a compassion for them. And I think if we have a love and a compassion for others, we will respond as Jesus does here. But when we are more concerned about ourselves and our own needs and desires, right? Why do we get frustrated with somebody when they're preventing us uh, from resting or preventing us from getting food or preventing us from whatever it is that we want in the moment? Why do we get frustrated in that time? Because we want what we want. Uh, and and that, that little object, whatever it may be, has become an idol. And when we don't get it, we become angry. So when we know it has become... Has taken too much of a hold upon our hearts. And so we should be amazed and, and gaze upon the compassion of Jesus. That even though he was tired and hungry and his disciples were tired and hungry, he shows compassion upon the people. And he teaches them and he heals them, even at this time. His compassion led him to graciously care for others. And then, secondly, we see that the compassion of Jesus led him to subtly test his disciples. And we see this in verses 5 through 9. Read along with me. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And so as we see Jesus looking up at this great crowd, he knows that he is going to, to feed them. But Jesus knows this, and the disciples don't. So Jesus sees this as an opportunity to test his disciples, uh, to help them uh, see what's going on in their own hearts. And so he addresses Philip in particular, and he speaks to Philip because Philip is uh, from the nearby city of Bethsaida, and and he would have been the most familiar with uh, this part of the country. He says, hey, Philip, where can we get food around here? And... 
And Jesus' question to Philip sounds a lot like uh, Moses' question to, to God in Numbers chapter 11, verse 13. And, and God says, or I'm sorry, Moses asks God, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Uh, again, all of these parallels between Moses and Jesus. And Philip's answer shows that he fails the test. And, and he fails the test because he's only looking at what is physical, what is natural there before him. He's like, I have no idea how we're going to do this. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to give every single person a bite. Wouldn't be enough. He says, eight months of a day laborer, day laborer's wages wouldn't be enough to feed this crowd, to even give them a a morsel. How in the world are we going to get enough food to feed them? And Philip's answer doesn't point to a solution. It only just points to the seeming impossibility of their situation. So Jesus speaks to Philip, says, hey, where can we get food? And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, comes. And and Andrew is always bringing somebody with him to meet Jesus over and over again. Very very unique. And and so Andrew brings uh, a young man, could be a a young boy or somebody in their 20s. But he he brings a young man, what I would assume would be his lunch. Uh, and this lunch consists of five barley loaves. And, and that word loaves, uh, what probably immediately pops into your head is like a, a, a bag of bread, right? Just like a loaf that we get in our grocery store. But they didn't have those back then. And when he says five loaves, it's really more like five pieces of pita bread. Okay? So, so that's really what we're talking about here. Five pita breads uh, and, and then two fish. And the, the word for fish is really just cooked food. So it's like cooked or salted or pickled in some way. And like, so this man is, hey, we have this one person's lunch. Uh, Jesus, does that help at all? Uh, and, and even as Andrew brings it forward, he, he has doubts about it. He says, I have this food, but it, what good is it going to do when we have all of these people to fill? Uh, and so... Uh, Andrew and Philip both doubt that anything can be done to provide for the people. But, but again, Jesus is not, is not polling his disciples for ideas on how to feed the people. Uh, he's not saying, hey, do you guys, I, I'm at a loss for what to do. Jesus, Jesus doesn't have that attitude. He's asking because he's testing their faith. Did they really trust in his power? And the answer to that question, as evidenced by their answer, is No. They didn't trust in the power of Jesus. They didn't trust in his ability. They didn't believe that he could provide for them and for the people around them. And you and I face similar tests on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis. We face circumstances in which we are not called to look uh, at the external situation, but we are called to, to look with eyes of faith. of Not just, hey, what am I facing, but what can the Lord do in this situation? And you might ask, well, well, when do I face such tests as this? When does the Lord test me? Well, whenever we are overwhelmed by our circumstances. Whenever our eyes move away from Christ and focus upon the situation, rather than upon the God who reigns over and is in control of every situation that we face in life. So when cars break down, or when jobs are downsized, or when an offense seems unforgivable, or when obedience to God seems impossible, when we are paralyzed by the opinions of others, and yes, even when, when babies miscarry in the womb, those are all tests. Those are all situations when we have to, to exercise faith. And those are moments when the quality and the nature of our faith is going to be revealed. Right? Exactly as it does for Philip here when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to test Philip. Philip, what do you think about this situation? Can I do anything? And Philip in essence says, no, I don't think you can do anything, Jesus. This is a hopeless situation. And we typically have that same response. When we look at life situations and we begin to despair. But when we face those trials... We're not called to face them in our own strength or in our own wisdom. We're not supposed to leave Jesus out of the equation. But we're supposed to look to Christ in those moments and turn to Him in prayer, turn to Him in His Word, and so that His Word can orient our hearts, our minds, and our entire world around what He is doing and what He is showing us. 
That's a demonstration of faith. When we trust in Jesus and we rely upon Him to do something supernaturally or providentially, the difference of... uh, Jesus doesn't necessarily multiply the food in our cupboards now, but he does uh, use ordinary means, that's the providence of God, to fulfill his purposes and to answer our prayers. And we are called to trust in him because only he can provide for us. And when we trust in him when facing these tests, that's when we pass those tests. But when we rely upon ourselves, we fail. And when God tests us, again, it is not for his benefit. There is no new or additional information that God learns from these tests. Okay? He's not like, oh, well, that was what was in Thomas's heart. Of, you know, he, he, we already saw earlier in John's Gospel, John chapter 2, verses 23, or 24 and 25, it says, And Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to these crowds who, who were saying that they believed in him. And it says it's because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. So, so Jesus is going to say, hey, I'm going to test Philip, but Jesus already knows what's in Philip. So who is the test for then? It's for Philip. Because the test is going to reveal to Philip what's really going on in his heart. When we are tested by God, it's for our benefit. It reveals what's really taking place in our hearts It reveals who and or what we are worshiping. And such tests also benefit us in another way, not just because they reveal what's going on inside, but James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 say this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of our faith, therefore, produces steadfastness, and it works to sanctify us, to mold us and shape us into the likeness of Christ. I love that song that we sang this morning just before I came up here. Speak, O Lord. Let your word shape and fashion us. That that is a prayer as we sing it, as we we speak it. And that is what we should long to see the Lord doing in our hearts and in our lives. And he does that through his word. And he does that through our experiences. Because he's going to bring things to the surface. What those circumstances do is they reveal what's going on in our hearts. That is the, the testing of our faith. And even when we, when we are tested and we fail, we can later rejoice. Not in the, the failing in and of itself. We don't rejoice in the, the failures of our faith. Those should still grieve us. But we can rejoice in what we learn from our failure. What's amazing, what did, what did Jesus make sure happened with Peter, the leader of the twelve disciples? He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And I've given him permission, is what Jesus says. See, Peter needed that experience because before Jesus was arrested, he's like, I'll go with you. We'll all go with you to the death. And then suddenly Jesus is taken away by the Roman soldiers. And what's Peter suddenly saying three times? I don't know him. And after that, it says that Peter went away and he wept bitterly. Did Peter understand the failure of his faith in that moment? Absolutely. But that's what he needed to know. That's what he needed to see was going on in his own heart. And that same passage in Luke 22, when, when, when Jesus is addressing Peter and saying, Hey, Satan has demanded to sift you and I've given him permission. Jesus also says, But I have prayed for you. And after you have been restored, I want you to turn and encourage your brothers. Because what did all of the other disciples do as well? (laughs) They all scattered. He says, Peter, I need you to to be the one to regather them and to encourage them after you all fail. And this is the lessons that we can rejoice in. In the testing of our faith, even when we fail. Because it reveals what is taking place in our hearts. And when we trust in anyone or anything other than Christ, we are guilty of idolatry. We're trusting in something else to satisfy us, something else to solve our problems. 
And no matter what it is, it's never going to deliver on its promises. Never. Only Jesus is able to deliver on the promises that he makes. And he, deliv- he delivers even when we don't understand what he could be doing. Right? Philip and Andrew in this situation, do they, do they know what Jesus is going to do? No, they just see the impossibility. Like, we have all of these people to feed and no way of feeding them. So it's kind of hopeless to them. We're like, okay, I guess they're just all going to starve. They're going to be very hungry. But we are called to exercise faith. Even when we cannot see what He is trying to do. Or how He is trying to accomplish it. We're called to trust. Jesus did provide for the people. And he did so in a remarkable and miraculous way. Which then leads us to this, this third mark this, of Jesus' compassion. That the compassion of Jesus led him to abundantly provide for the people. And this is seen in verses 10 through 13. And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so after hearing from, from Andrew and from Philip, Jesus was now ready to act. He says, alright, order everybody to, to sit down. Uh, and th- there's nice grass here to so have them just recline. That's what the, the Greek word means. They just lay down. Uh, Mark uh, adds that they were sitting in groups of 50, uh, which would have made it really easy to count how many people there were. Uh, and there's a, a little bit of a difference here uh, in, in the, the words in the Greek, and then it's clarified in the other Gospels. But uh, the number 5,000, that is the number of men. Not the total number of people. Matthew makes it really clear. He says there were 5,000 men besides the women and children. So this really wasn't the feeding of the 5,000. This was probably closer to the feeding of fifteen to 20,000 people. That's probably what this was like. And Jesus took the bread, these five little pita breads, And he broke them, and giving thanks to God, he used his disciples to distribute it to all of the people. And he did the same thing with two small fish. And me, just in my own imagination, I'm like, I want to know more. Tell me about what happened. Was it like Jesus ripped... uh, you know, one of the, the breads in half and then distributed it out and then suddenly there's like a new piece of bread. Like, I, I just want to be like, I want to just kind of sit there in front of him like, okay, do it again. Uh, I, just, I just want to see. How, how, does, how is this possible? How do you feed 20,000 people with, with just this amount of food? But that's, those are the things that I wonder about. I think what's also remarkable is that some people read this and they deny that a miracle actually takes place. Because if you read this carefully, it just seems to be implied that the food multiplies. It's not explicitly said and what takes place. It just says, and Jesus broke the bread and gave thanks, and then everybody had a meal. So you're like, what? and there's some who say, well, it was the compassion of Jesus that inspired everybody just to start sharing their lunch. And I'm like, well, there's a couple issues with that. Because if you're going to say that, uh, it doesn't match up with what the other gospel accounts say. Because the other gospel accounts say it's getting late in the day. Meaning it's past lunch. And I don't know if you're anything like me. If you pack your lunch, you're like, is it 1130? Can I, can I start eating it yet? Um, you eat your lunch quick. So, so if it's later in the day, those lunches are gone. And if everybody still has their lunch, then there's no reason that this even comes up. Right? If they say, how are we going to feed these people? Like, they brought lunches. Really? That's like, okay, so that's problem solved. But that's not the, the issue. There is a problem and a situation because uh, 
They don't have food. And there indeed is a miracle that takes place here. An amazing miracle. And John also mentions a little detail about the bread that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention. He says that the loaves are made of barley. And, and barley was the, the, the common grain that was eaten by the, the, the poorest and lowest classes of people in the land. I think it's mentioned to, to see the, the poverty of the people that have come to Jesus. But I also think it's, it's intended to make a connection with a similar miracle performed by Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, where uh, there's people who are hungry uh, and uh, Elisha's like, how are we going to feed them? And a man comes and has the barley loaves and Elisha does something similar. He, break, he gives thanks, breaks the bread, feeds everybody and there's food left over. Again, all of these illusions that show Jesus is connected to the Old Testament. Jesus is connected to the God of the Old Testament. And he's uh, recreating the miracles of the greatest prophets, Moses and Elisha. That's the, the connections that are being made here. And as Jesus performed this miracle, we have to, to notice he didn't give everybody a light afternoon snack. Right? Again, it wasn't just, hey, everybody has a bite. Okay, now we're good. What's amazing is at the end of verse 11, what does it say? It says, and they, uh, as much as they wanted, they had as much food as they desired to eat, and all of them were satisfied, it says in verse 12. Right? So when they had eaten their fill, they had completely filled themselves up. Then they're like, okay, well, we have extra and let's gather it up. And, and what's remarkable to think about is if the, these crowds of people, 20,000 people, I think a, a good portion of them were probably day laborers, were probably in poverty. And this might have been the only time they ever could have eaten to, their, uh, to be full. This might have been the only time they could eat as much as they could, to eat as much as they wanted until they were completely satisfied. Because when the budget's tight, what do you do? You naturally ration. You're like, okay, well, this is what I can afford to eat today, and I can't eat anything else. And, and so this really would have been a banquet for them. And it's still barley bread and salted fish, but it's still as much as you can eat. And there was still some left over. And as was the Jewish custom, and when there's food left over, you don't let it go to waste. And so Jesus only issues two commands in this passage. The first command is have the people sit down. And the second command is gather everything up so that nothing would be wasted. And what we really see here, what is on display, is the abundant provision that Jesus gives to his people. That Jesus is the supplier of people's needs. And the banquets that he holds are the greatest banquets that anyone could enjoy. And over and over again in the Old Testament, it speaks of the, the, the food and the abundance and the blessing that the Messiah would bring. And this is one of those pictures of a, you can call it a messianic banquet. By the way, all of us as the church are going to be a part of a messianic banquet. Uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to get to see and behold. Uh, and we're going to have a lot more than just barley and, and fish. Uh, it, it's going to be amazing. But what's hard to, to put our minds around, because we, we have such abundance in our nation, right? It, when we want food, how far away is it? Right? It's, it's at most just a couple miles away at the nearest grocery store, right? Uh, or your cupboard, right? When, you, when your teenager, parents, when your teenager is hungry, they're like, Mom, what is there to eat? What do you always tell them? Go look in the cupboard, right? Uh, and there's usually food there. Uh, we, we are so blessed and we have so much abundant food. Uh, and the United States is actually the world's largest exporter of food. And, and we don't tend to think about food that much. And I would dare say we probably don't even think about where the food in the grocery store comes from. We think that the food in the grocery store comes from the grocery store, right? Like that's where it comes from, right? Uh, but we need to think beyond that. Beyond just, hey, it's at the grocery store. We need to think beyond the, the food manufacturers. We need to think beyond the, the farmers who produce the food. 
We need to see and understand that all the food that we have, all the food that anyone has, has come from God. That He truly is the one who provides abundantly for His people and for the world. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. I love Psalm 50, verse 12. God speaks, He says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Right? God doesn't have to ask anybody else for food because He owns all the food. And then what's remarkable is Acts chapter 14, verse 17, as the Apostle Paul preaches, he says, Yet he, speaking of God, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What's amazing there, the Apostle Paul points to food as a way that God testifies to his own existence. Have you ever used food as an apologetic argument? That's what the Apostle Paul does here. You know God exists because food exists. And the pastor of food says, Amen. Amen. All right. And again, that's what we see. That's what we need to think about. That we must give thanks to God. We must recognize His abundant provision. And respond with praise and thanksgiving and worship for all that He has blessed us with. And that is what the Lord Jesus wants to communicate to the people later on when He's going to say, I am the bread of life. He's like, yes, I'm going to feed you and now let me teach you about what this means. But as we see this miracle here, that is the message. And what's amazing is that later on in this chapter, this generation of Israel... That's there with Jesus. They're going to grumble against Jesus in the same way that the first generation of Israel grumbled against Moses. Right? And you're like, why do they do that? I can't believe this. But then we we really step back and we say, what are our hearts prone to do? Our hearts are, are always hungry and yet never satisfied. And rather than understanding that only an infinite God can satisfy our heart's desires... What are we tempted to do when we are dissatisfied? We grumble and we complain, even as we're shocked at the Israelites. How can they do that? But then what do we turn around and do? The exact same thing. We have to fight this tendency towards ungratefulness. We are called to recognize and behold the compassion of Christ toward us. And His compassion led Him to graciously care for us, to test us, and to provide for us. And then lastly, we are to see the compassion of Jesus led Him to quietly reject man's intentions. The compassion of Jesus led Him to quietly reject man's intentions. And this is seen in verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And these last two verses show us how the people respond to the miracle that Jesus has performed. And Jesus has just recreated, in essence, what Moses did. Jesus has just fed thousands of people, in essence, out of nothing. And so the people come to this conclusion of, hey, this must be the prophet who is to come into the world. And he's referring to the prophecy by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And when the people conclude that Jesus is the prophet, they also conclude something else. If this is the prophet, we've got to make him king. And they are getting ready to, to take him and crown him as king right then and there. And they're willing to do it by force. But Jesus could not become king at that time and at that place. His hour had not yet come. Because Jesus must go to the cross. He must go and die and pay the penalty for sin. And this temptation presented by the crowd is very similar to the temptation uh, of Satan. 
Right? Satan comes to Jesus when in the wilderness and says, Hey, I'll give you all of these kingdoms if you just bow down and worship me. And the people went and said, Hey, Jesus, we'll make you king right now. And think of this. If Jesus had said yes, he would have commanded an army of 5,000 men that very day. You really think of what that temptation would have been, right? You can do a lot of things with an army of 5,000 men. But Jesus says no. The temptation for Jesus is always to try and become king another way. That was Satan's tactic. To get Jesus to try and become king without going to the cross. But Jesus says, I cannot do that. One commentator, thinking about what Mark's gospel says, is it calls this crowd a sheep without a shepherd. This commentator says, or they're really soldiers without a captain. That on the Passover feast, there would have been such a, a national patriotism, sort of like on our Independence Day, right? Everybody wears red, white, and blue, and they're ready to set off some fireworks. Uh, the, the Jews at that time, every Passover, they were in essence ready to rebel. You know, like, hey, if, if Jesus is doing all of the things that Moses did, and Moses defeated Pharaoh, maybe Jesus is going to defeat Rome for us. Let's make him king. But in doing this, they wanted a king of their own making. They desired a king who would deliver them from Rome, but they rejected the king who had come to save them from sin. I love what one pastor writes. He says, the one who is already king has come to open his kingdom to men. But in their blindness, men try to force him to be the kind of king they want. Thus they fail to get the king they want, and they lose the kingdom he offers. And Jesus is aware of the intentions of the crowd. So what we see happen in the other Gospels is Jesus sends away his disciples, he sends away the crowd, and Jesus goes up again on his own. And what we see here in the crowd is also another one of our tendencies. The crowd wanted to take Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you can do this for me. I want you to be this. And that's our tendency. Say, Jesus, I want you to, to, to obey me. We'll be great as long as you listen to me. <clears throat> you will all sit on, on cardboard thrones of our own making and we seek to negotiate. We say, well, uh, I'll let you rule and reign to a certain degree if you let me do this, this and this, or if you do that. Uh, but the message of the gospel it's very different. The message of the gospel calls us uh, to acknowledge our rebellion, to acknowledge our cardboard throne. Uh, and the message of the gospel, in essence, just says, hey, the, the real king is coming, and he will forgive if you surrender right now. That's the message of the gospel. And that's what we are called to, to understand and to acknowledge, our sinfulness against the king of the universe and, and our guilt in trying to make him obey us and trying to make him do what we want him to do rather than submitting to his lordship. And there may be some here this morning who are still sitting on that cardboard throne. That you are still thinking that you are in charge of yourself. That you can shape and mold Jesus, that you can negotiate with him. But that's simply not the case. And Jesus will have no part of any throne except the throne that he is on, at the right hand of God the Father. So I would urge anyone here who has not placed their faith and trust in Christ to, to surrender to him before he comes and kicks down your throne. We are called to look to Jesus in faith today, to yield the throne to him and Jesus rejects any and all of our attempts to manipulate him for our own purposes. And his compassion for us leads him to do what is best for us. And that sometimes means rejecting our plans. That sometimes means saying, no, you don't, you're not going to get what you want. And sometimes we see and understand that, right? You're familiar with maybe the Garth Brooks songs. Uh, sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayer. Sometimes we, we, we look back and we're like, okay, I'm really glad God didn't answer that prayer. Uh, but other times we, we can grow bitter towards the Lord because he has rejected our plan for his own. 
But we must realize if Jesus had given in to the whims of the people at this point in time, we would all still be groaning under the weight of our sin. We would all still be condemned. And so we must be okay with Jesus telling us no at times, quietly rejecting our plans. And that's why we pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. What we see here in the miracle of Jesus feeding not just 5,000, more like 20,000 people serves to demonstrate his compassion, puts his character on display. And as we saw this morning, uh, when we think of the Lord's compassion, we are probably immediately think of his care and his provision, right? Of him healing and him providing for us. But we don't usually attach the compassion of the Lord to his testing of us and to him saying no to us. But those are the lessons that we need to hold on to. Those are the lessons that we need to embrace. Yeah, I've spoken many times, gone back to a similar illustration, that, that when we come to God's Word, when we study it, when we sit under the proclamation of God's Word, we are making spiritual deposits in a bank account, right? And we are depositing truth to be withdrawn later at time of need. And if we, have, if we make those deposits regularly, when trials come, when the testing of our faith appears in our life, we have something to, to withdraw from and to rely upon. But if we have nothing, if we have no knowledge of God, if we have no understanding of who He is and what He has done, if we don't see and understand and appreciate the compassion of the Lord, not just in His care and provision, but also in His testing and Him saying no, then we will not respond in faith to those testings. And we will fail and we will struggle and we will grow bitter. But that's where I said it's, it is good for me and it is good for you to come and just behold Christ on occasion. Again, this is, this is one of those who is messages, not just a how to message. And we need to come and see and behold Jesus and be ensured of his compassion and his love for us so that we are ready and prepared when life hits. So may we continue to deposit and may we continue to remember Christ's love and compassion for us and all that that entails. Again, his care, his provision, but also his testing and his quietly rejecting our plans and our desires. Amen.